Section 1 of a Collection of Supreme Court Opinions by the United States Supreme Court. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marbury v. Madison, 5 U.S. 137, decided February 24, 1803, Part 1. Please note, this is reading of the opinion of the Court only. This reading does not include the syllabus or any concurring or dissenting opinions. For ease of listening, this reading omits legal citations found within the text of the Court's opinion. Mr. Chief Justice Marshall delivered the opinion of the Court. At the last term, on the affidavits then read and filed with the clerk, a rule was granted in this case, requiring the Secretary of State to show cause why a mandamus should not issue, directing him to deliver to William Marbury his commission as a Justice of the Peace for the County of Washington in the District of Columbia. No cause has been shown, and the present motion is for a mandamus. The peculiar delicacy of this case, the novelty of some of its circumstances, and the real difficulty attending the points which occur in it, require a complete exposition of the principles on which the opinion to be given by the court is founded. These principles have been, on the side of the applicant, very ably argued at the bar. In rendering the opinion of the court, there will be some departure in form, though not in substance from the points stated in that argument. In the order in which the court has viewed this subject, the following questions have been considered and decided. 1. Has the applicant a right to the commission he demands? 2. If he has a right, and that right has been violated, do the laws of his country afford him a remedy? 3. If they do afford him a remedy, is it a mandamus issuing from this court? The first object of inquiry is, 1. Has the applicant a right to the commission he demands? His right originates in an act of Congress passed in February 1801, concerning the District of Columbia. After dividing the district into two counties, the eleventh section of this law enacts, quote, that there shall be appointed in and for each of the said counties such number of discreet persons to be justices of the peace, as the President of the United States shall, from time to time, think expedient to continue in office for five years. End of quote. It appears from the affidavits that, in compliance with this law, a commission for William Marbury as a Justice of Peace for the County of Washington was signed by John Adams, then President of the United States, after which the seal of the United States was affixed to it, but the commission has never reached the person for whom it was made out. In order to determine whether he is entitled to this commission, it becomes necessary to inquire whether he has been appointed to the office. For if he has been appointed, the law continues him in office for five years, and he is entitled to the possession of those evidences of office which, being completed, became his property. The second section of the second article of the Constitution declares, quote, The President shall nominate and by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, shall appoint ambassadors, other public ministers and consuls, and all other officers of the United States, whose appointments are not otherwise provided for. End of quote. The third section declares that, quote, he shall commission all the officers of the United States. End of quote. An act of Congress directs the Secretary of State to keep the seal of the United States. Quote, to make out and record and affix the said seal to all civil commissions to officers 
of the United States to be appointed by the President, by and with the consent of the Senate, or by the President alone, provided that the said seal shall not be affixed to any commission before the same shall have been signed by the President of the United States. These are the clauses of the Constitution and laws of the United States which affect this part of the case. They seem to contemplate three distinct operations. 1. The nomination. This is the sole act of the President, and is completely voluntary. 2. The appointment. This is also the act of the President, and is also a voluntary act, though it can only be performed by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. 3. The commission. To grant a commission to a person appointed might perhaps be deemed a duty enjoined by the Constitution. Quote, he shall, end of quote, says that instrument, quote, commission all the officers of the United States, end of quote. The acts of appointing to office and commissioning the person appointed can scarcely be considered as one and the same, since the power to perform them is given in two separate and distinct sections of the Constitution. The distinction between the appointment and the commission will be rendered more apparent by adverting to that provision in the second section of the second article of the Constitution, which authorizes Congress, quote, to vest by law the appointment of such inferior officers as they think proper in the president alone, in the courts of law, or in the heads of departments. End of quote. Thus contemplating cases where the law may direct the president to commission an officer appointed by the courts or by the heads of departments. In such a case, to issue a commission would be apparently a duty distinct from the appointment, the performance of which perhaps could not legally be refused. Although that clause of the Constitution which requires the President to commission all the officers of the United States may never have been applied to officers appointed otherwise than by himself, yet it would be difficult to deny the legislative power to apply it to such cases. Of consequence, the constitutional distinction between the appointment to an office and the commission of an officer who has been appointed remains the same as if in practice the President had commissioned officers appointed by an authority other than his own. It follows, too, from the existence of this distinction that, if an appointment was to be evidenced by any public act other than the commission, the performance of such public act would create the officer, and, if he was not removable at the will of the president, would either give him a right to his commission or enable him to perform the duties without it. These observations are premised solely for the purpose of rendering more intelligible those which apply more directly to the particular case under consideration. This is an appointment made by the President, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate, and is evidenced by no act but the Commission itself. In such a case, therefore, the Commission and the appointment seem inseparable, it being almost impossible to show an appointment otherwise than by proving the existence of a Commission. Still, the Commission is not necessarily the appointment, though conclusive evidence of it. But at what stage does it amount to this conclusive evidence? The answer to this question seems an obvious one. The appointment, being the sole act of the President, must be completely evidenced when it is shown that he has done everything to be performed by him. Should the Commission, instead of being evidence of an appointment, even be considered as constituting the appointment itself, still it would be made when the last act to be done by the President was performed, or, at furthest, when the Commission was complete. 
The last act to be done by the President is the signature of the commission. He is then acted on the advice and consent of the Senate to his own nomination. The time for deliberation has then passed. He has decided. His judgment, on the advice and consent of the Senate concurring with his nomination, has been made, and the officer is appointed. The appointment is evidenced by an open, unequivocal act, and, being the last act required from the person making it, necessarily excludes the idea of its being, so far as it respects the appointment, an inchoate and incomplete transaction. Some point of time must be taken when the power of the executive over an officer, not removable at his will, must cease. That point of time must be when the constitutional power of appointment has been exercised, and this power has been exercised when the last act required from the person possessing the power has been performed. This last act is the signature of the commission. This idea seems to have prevailed with the legislature when the act passed converting the Department of Foreign Affairs into the Department of State. By that act, it is enacted that the Secretary of State shall keep the seal of the United States, quote, and shall make out and record, and shall affix the said seal to all civil commissions to officers of the United States, to be appointed by the President provided that the said seal shall not be affixed to any commission before the same shall have been signed by the President of the United States, nor to any other instrument or act without the special warrant of the President therefore. End of quote. The signature is a warrant for affixing the great seal to the commission, and the great seal is only to be affixed to an instrument which is complete. It attests by an act supposed to be of public notoriety, the verity of the presidential signature. It is never to be affixed till the commission is signed, because the signature, which gives force and effect to the commission, is conclusive evidence that the appointment is made. The commission being signed, the subsequent duty of the Secretary of State is prescribed by law, and not to be guided by the will of the President. He is to affix the seal of the United States to the commission, and is to record it. This is not a proceeding which may be varied if the judgment of the executive shall suggest one more eligible, but is a precise course accurately marked out by law, and is to be strictly pursued. It is the duty of the Secretary of State to conform to the law, and in this he is an officer of the United States, bound to obey the laws. He acts, in this respect, as has been very properly stated at the bar, under the authority of law, and not by the instructions of the President. It is a ministerial act which the law enjoins on a particular officer for a particular purpose. If it should be supposed that the solemnity of affixing the seal is necessary not only to the validity of the commission, but even to the completion of an appointment, still, when the seal is affixed, the appointment is made, and the commission is valid. No other solemnity is required by law, no other act is to be performed on the part of government. All that the executive can do to invest the person with his office is done, and unless the appointment be then made, the executive cannot make one without the cooperation of others. After searching anxiously for the principles on which a contrary opinion may be supported, none has been found which appear of sufficient force to maintain the opposite doctrine. Such as the imagination of the court could suggest have been very deliberately examined, and after allowing them all the weight which it appears possible to give them, they do not shake the opinion which has been formed. 
In considering this question, it has been conjectured that the commission may have been assimilated to a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. This idea is founded on the supposition that the commission is not merely evidence of an appointment, but is itself the actual appointment, a supposition by no means unquestionable. But for the purpose of examining this objection fairly, let it be conceded that the principle claimed for its support is established. The appointment being under the Constitution to be made by the President personally, the delivery of the deed of appointment, if necessary to its completion, must be made by the President also. It is not necessary that the livery should be made personally to the grantee of the office. It never is so made. The law would seem to contemplate that it should be made to the Secretary of State, since it directs the Secretary to affix the seal to the Commission after it shall have been signed by the President. If then the act of livery be necessary to give validity to the Commission, it has been delivered when executed and given to the Secretary for the purpose of being sealed, recorded, and transmitted to the party. But in all cases of letters patent, certain solemnities are required by law, which solemnities are the evidences of the validity of the instrument. A formal delivery to the person is not among them. In cases of commissions, the sign manual of the President and the seal of the United States are those solemnities. This objection, therefore, does not touch the case. It has also occurred as possible, and barely possible, that the transmission of the commission and the acceptance thereof might be deemed necessary to complete the right of the plaintiff. The transmission of the commission is a practice directed by convenience, but not by law. It cannot, therefore, be necessary to constitute the appointment, which must precede it, and which is the mere act of the President. If the executive required that every person appointed to an office should himself take means to procure his commission, the appointment would not be the less valid on that account. The appointment is the sole act of the President. The transmission of the commission is the sole act of the officer to whom that duty is assigned, and may be accelerated or retarded by circumstances which can have no influence on the appointment. A commission is transmitted to a person already appointed, not to a person to be appointed or not, as the letter enclosing the commission should happen to get into the post office and reach him in safety, or to miscarry. It may have some tendency to elucidate this point, to inquire whether the possession of the original commission be indispensably necessary to authorize a person appointed to any office to perform the duties of that office. If it was necessary, then a loss of the commission would lose the office. Not only negligence, but accident or fraud, fire or theft might deprive an individual of his office. In such a case, I presume it could not be doubted but that a copy from the record of the office of the Secretary of State would be, to every intent and purpose, equal to the original. The Act of Congress has expressly made it so. To give that copy validity, it would not be necessary to prove that the original had been transmitted and afterwards lost. The copy would be complete evidence that the original had existed, and that the appointment had been made, but not that the original had been transmitted. If indeed it should appear that the original had been mislaid in the office of state, that circumstance would not affect the operation of the copy. When all the requisites had been performed which authorized a recording officer to record any instrument whatever, and the order for that purpose has been given, the instrument is in law considered as recorded, although the manual labor of inserting it in a book kept for that purpose may not have been performed.
In the case of commissions, the law orders the Secretary of State to record them. When, therefore, they are signed and sealed, the order for their being recorded is given, and, whether inserted in the book or not, they are in law recorded. A copy of this record is declared equal to the original, and the fees to be paid by a person requiring a copy are ascertained by law. Can a keeper of a public record erase therefrom a commission which has been recorded? Or can he refuse a copy thereof to a person demanding it, on the terms prescribed by law? Such a copy would, equally with the original, authorize the justice of peace to proceed in the performance of his duty, because it would, equally with the original, attest his appointment. If the transmission of a commission be not considered as necessary to give validity to an appointment, still less is its acceptance. The appointment is the sole act of the President. The acceptance is the sole act of the officer, and is, in plain common sense, posterior to the appointment. As he may resign, so may he refuse to accept, but neither the one nor the other is capable of rendering the appointment a non-entity. That this is the understanding of the government is apparent from the whole tenor of its conduct. A commission bears date, and the salary of the officer commences from his appointment, not from the transmission or acceptance of his commission. When a person appointed to any office refuses to accept that office, the successor is nominated in the place of the person who has declined to accept, and not in the place of the person who had been previously in office and had created the original vacancy. It is therefore decidedly the opinion of the court that, when a commission has been signed by the President, the appointment is made, and that the commission is complete when the seal of the United States has been affixed to it by the Secretary of State. Where an officer is removable at the will of the executive, the circumstance which completes his appointment is of no concern, because the act is at any time revocable, and the commission may be arrested if still in the office. But when the officer is not removable at the will of the executive, the appointment is not revocable, and cannot be annulled. It has conferred legal rights which cannot be resumed. The discretion of the executive is to be exercised until the appointment has been made. But having once made the appointment, his power over the office is terminated in all cases, whereby law the officer is not removable by him. The right to the office is then in the person appointed and he has the absolute, unconditional power of accepting or rejecting it. Mr. Marbury, then, since his commission was signed by the President and sealed by the Secretary of State, was appointed, and as the law creating the office gave the officer a right to hold for five years independent of the executive, the appointment was not revocable, but vested in the officer legal rights which are protected by the laws of his country. To withhold the commission, therefore, is an act deemed by the court not warranted by law, but violative of a vested legal right. This brings us to the second inquiry, which is, 2. If he has a right, and that right has been violated, do the laws of his country afford him a remedy? The very essence of civil liberty certainly consists in the right of every individual to claim the protection of the laws whenever he receives an injury. 
one of the first duties of government is to afford that protection. In Great Britain, the king himself is sued in this respectful form of a petition, and he never fails to comply with the judgment of his court. In the third volume of his Commentaries, page 23, Blackstone states two cases in which a remedy is afforded by mere operation of law. Quote, in all other cases, end of quote, he says, quote, It is a general and indisputable rule that where there is a legal right, there is also a legal remedy by suit or action at law whenever that right is invaded. End of quote. And afterwards, page 109 of the same volume, he says, quote, I am next to consider such injuries as are cognizable by the courts of common law. And herein I shall for the present only remark that all possible injuries whatsoever that did not fall within the exclusive cognizance of either the ecclesiastical, military, or maritime tribunals are, for that very reason, within the cognizance of the common law courts of justice. For it is a settled and invariable principle in the laws of England that every right, when withheld, must have a remedy, and every injury its proper redress. End of quote. The government of the United States has been emphatically termed a government of laws, and not of men. They will certainly cease to deserve this high appellation, if the laws furnish no remedy for the violation of a vested legal right. If this obloquy is to be cast on the jurisprudence of our country, it must arise from the peculiar character of the case. It behooves us, then, to inquire whether there be in its composition any ingredient which shall exempt from legal investigation or exclude the injured party from legal redress. In pursuing this inquiry, the first question which presents itself is whether this can be arranged with that class of cases which come under the description of damnum obsci injuria, a loss without an injury. This description of cases never has been considered, and, it is believed, never can be considered, as comprehending offices of trust, of honor, or of profit. The Office of Justice of Peace in the District of Columbia is such an office. It is therefore worthy of the attention and guardianship of the laws. It has received that attention and guardianship. It has been created by special act of Congress, and has been secured, so far as the laws can give security to the person appointed to fill it, for five years. It is not then on account of the worthlessness of the thing pursued that the injured party can be alleged to be without remedy. Is it in the nature of the transaction? Is the act of delivering or withholding a commission to be considered as a mere political act belonging to the executive department alone, for the performance of which entire confidence is placed by our Constitution in the supreme executive, and for any misconduct respecting which the injured individual has no remedy? That there may be such cases is not to be questioned, but that every act of duty to be performed in any of the great departments of government constitutes such a case is not to be admitted. By the Act Concerning Invalids, passed in June 1794, the Secretary at War was ordered to place on the pension list all persons whose names are contained in a report previously made by him to Congress. If he should refuse to do so, would the wounded veteran be without remedy? 
is it to be contended that where the law in precise terms directs the performance of an act in which an individual is interested the law is incapable of securing obedience to its mandate is it on account of the character of the person against whom the complaint is made is it to be contended that the heads of departments are not amenable to the laws of their country whatever the practice on particular occasions may be the theory of this principle will certainly never be maintained no act of the legislature confers so extraordinary a privilege nor can it derive countenance from the doctrines of the common law after stating that the personal injury from the king to a subject is presumed to be impossible blackstone volume three page two fifty five says quote, but injuries to the rights of property can scarcely be committed by the crown without the intervention of its officers for whom the law in matters of right entertains no respect or delicacy but furnishes various methods of detecting the errors and misconduct of those agents by whom the king has been deceived and induced to do a temporary injustice End of quote. by the act passed in seventeen ninety six authorizing the sale of the lands above the mouth of kentucky river the purchaser on paying his purchase money becomes completely entitled to the property purchased and on producing to the secretary of state the receipt of the treasurer upon certificate required by the law the president of the united states is authorized to grant him a patent it is further enacted that all patents shall be countersigned by the secretary of state and recorded in his office if the secretary of state should choose to withhold this patent or the patent being lost should refuse a copy of it can it be imagined that the law furnishes to the injured person no remedy it is not believed that any person whatever would attempt to maintain such a proposition it follows then that the question of whether the legality of an act of the head of a department be examinable in a court of justice or not must always depend on the nature of that act if some acts be examinable and others not there must be some rule of law to guide the court in the exercise of its jurisdiction in some instances there may be difficulty in applying the rule to particular cases but there cannot it is believed be much difficulty in laying down the rule by the constitution of the united states the president is invested with certain important political powers in the exercise of which he is to use his own discretion and is accountable only to his country in his political character and to his own conscience to aid him in the performance of these duties he is authorized to appoint certain officers who act by his authority and in conformity with his orders in such cases their acts are his acts and whatever opinion may be entertained of the matter in which the executive discretion may be used still there exists and can exist no power to control that discretion the subjects are political they respect the nation not individual rights and being entrusted to the executive the decision of the executive is conclusive the application of this remark will be perceived by adverting to the act of congress for establishing the department of foreign affairs this officer as his duties were prescribed by that act is to conform precisely to the will of the president he is the mere organ by whom that will is communicated the acts of such an officer as an officer can never be examinable by the courts but when the legislature proceeds to impose on that officer other duties when he is directed peremptorily to perform certain acts 
when the rights of individuals are dependent on the performance of those acts, he is so far the officer of the law, is amenable to the laws for his conduct, and cannot, at his discretion, sport away the vested rights of others. The conclusion from this reasoning is that, where the heads of departments are the political or confidential agents of the executive, merely to execute the will of the president, or rather to act in cases in which the executive possesses a constitutional or legal discretion, nothing can be more perfectly clear than that their acts are only politically examinable. But where a specific duty is assigned by law, and individual rights depend upon the performance of that duty, it seems equally clear that the individual who considers himself injured has a right to resort to the laws of his country for remedy. If this be the rule, let us inquire how it applies to the case under the consideration of the court. The power of nominating to the Senate, and the power of appointing the person nominated, are political powers, to be exercised by the President according to his own discretion. When he has made an appointment, he has exercised his whole power, and his discretion has been completely applied to the case. If by law the officer be removable at the will of the President, then a new appointment may be immediately made, and the rights of the officer are terminated. But, as a fact which has existed cannot be made never to have existed, the appointment cannot be annihilated, and, consequently, if the officer is by law not removable at the will of the President, the rights he has acquired are protected by the law, and are not resumable by the President. They cannot be extinguished by executive authority, and he has the privilege of asserting them in like manner as if they had been derived from any other source. The question whether a right has vested or not is in its nature judicial and must be tried by the judicial authority. If, for example, Mr. Marbury had taken the oaths of a magistrate and proceeded to act as one, in consequence of which a suit had been instituted against him in which his defense had depended on his being a magistrate, the validity of his appointment must have been determined by judicial authority. So, if he conceives that, by virtue of his appointment, he has a legal right either to the commission which has been made out for him or to a copy of that commission, it is equally a question examinable in a court, and the decision of the court upon it must depend on the opinion entertained of his appointment. That question has been discussed, and the opinion is that the latest point of time which can be taken as that at which the appointment was complete and evidenced was when, after the signature of the President, the seal of the United States was affixed to the Commission. It is then the opinion of the Court, 1. That by signing the Commission of Mr. Marbury, the President of the United States appointed him a Justice of Peace for the County of Washington in the District of Columbia, and that the seal of the United States, affixed thereto by the Secretary of State, is conclusive testimony of the verity of the signature, and of the completion of the appointment, and that the appointment conferred on him a legal right to the office for the space of five years. 2. That having this legal title to the office, he has a consequent right to the commission, a refusal to deliver, which is a plain violation of that right, for which the laws of his country afford him a remedy. It remains to be inquired whether, 
three he is entitled to the remedy for which he applies this depends on one the nature of the writ applied for and two the power of this court one the nature of the writ blackstone in the third volume of his commentaries page one hundred and ten defines a mandamus to be quote, a command issuing in the king's name from the court of king's bench and directed to any person corporation or inferior court of judicature within the king's dominions requiring them to do some particular thing therein specified which appertains to their office and duty and which the court of king's bench has previously determined or at least supposes to be consonant to right and justice End of quote. lord mansfield in three boroughs twelve sixty six in the case of the king v baker et al states with much precision and explicitness the cases in which this writ may be used quote, whenever end of quote, says that very able judge quote, there is a right to execute an office perform a service or exercise a franchise more especially if it be in a matter of public concern or attended with profit and a person is kept out of possession or dispossessed of such right and has no other specific legal remedy this court ought to assist by mandamus upon reasons of justice as the writ expresses and upon reasons of public policy to preserve peace order and good government End of quote. in the same case he says Quote, this writ ought to be used upon all occasions where the law has established no specific remedy and where in justice and good government there ought to be one End of quote. in addition to the authorities now particularly cited many others were relied on at the bar which show how far the practice has conformed to the general doctrines that have been just quoted this writ if awarded would be directed to an officer of government and its mandate to him would be to use the words of Blackstone, quote, to do a particular thing therein specified which appertains to his office and duty and which the court has previously determined or at least supposes to be consonant to right and justice. End of quote. Or, in the words of Lord Mansfield, the applicant, in this case, has a right to execute an office of public concern and is kept out of possession of that right. These circumstances certainly concur in this case. End of section one.